Guru Nation, welcome to episode 440 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Chris and I, in this particular episode, go through a site owner academy session where we discuss and we really break down the most common types of visits that occur in a clinical research study. So everything from pre-screening to end of treatment, loss to follow-up, we cover all of it here from the perspective of a site, but also good for anybody who's just curious, maybe potential CRAs or... Uh, maybe even some patients that are out there listening. You are much valued and much needed. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. Uh, make sure you check out the show notes. We got the Patreon channel. I'm really excited about it. We're growing a small army of people with the monthly mastermind sessions going on on Zoom right now every month. We all meet, hold each other accountable. We all learn how to grow our brands using social media, marketing, how to grow our careers and career opportunities as well as business opportunities. Patreon.com slash Only five bucks a month. Also in the show notes, we got the CRA Academy, CRC Academy, enrolling stronger than ever. Check those out in the show notes. If you want more studies for your site, give me a text, 949-415-6256. As always, I appreciate you listening. If you like it, make sure you give this podcast a review. With that being said, let's get into the most common type of site visits in a clinical research study. Take care. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of the Site Owner Academy. My name is Dan Sfera. I've got Chris Sauber on. Chris, how are you doing this uh, fine Thursday? Yeah, doing well. Thank you for asking, Dan. Hopefully you're doing well as, as well. Enough uh, wells there. Yes. Very, we could find out how to put one more well in that sentence. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, uh, so today in the Site Owner Academy, uh, we always do, we have a weekly meeting with the Site Owner Academy students, but we always do Q&A at the end, but we're recording the presentation only. So if you're on YouTube and if you're on the podcast, you're just going to hear or see the presentation itself, not the QA that's private. We want to keep the QA session private for the Site Owner Academy students. So with that being said, today's topic is going to be the different possible patient visits in most clinical research studies. Now, we say most because there are tons of clinical research studies. And I these are all encompassed. It doesn't mean that all of these are going to be in every single study. But we're trying to be comprehensive as possible. So, the different possible patient visits in most clinical trials. Not a very long presentation, I think like seven slides, which Didn't actually for us is it's kind of long. Didn't we just do this recently? Mm, no, I think we did a video on this uh, that Carlos turned into uh, slides uh, for uh, the title. Uh, that owners. makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So, exactly. He was actually in that video. So, go watch that one if you guys want like a unofficial one. This is the official one with bullet points and slides and everything. Uh, so the first visit, Chris, is the screening visits. Okay, every study is going to have a screening visit. Some studies will incorporate screening and randomization in the same visit. We'll talk about baseline and randomization visits a few slides from now. Where, uh, but screening visits is where it all starts. Where, where's where, the 
there's uh, oftentimes a pre-screening visit. Where's that? Well, I guess we can talk about pre-screening first before we do screening. So what's pre-screening? Because technically, you're right, although it's not an official visit, but most sites do a pre-screening visit. So give us like a well, walkthrough of what that is. Well, I, I don't know if I would frame it in that way. I think I've seen a couple of budgets recently in which they're paying for pre-screening. Like it's kind of a visit in a, in a way. Wow, um, okay. Yeah, you are the budget guy. I mean, you do literally all of our budgets in our site owner network yeah. and in the uh, sites we own ourselves. I was going to pull up the one budget I'm thinking of, but I can't. Uh, I forgot I'm sharing my screen. So, um, okay. But I'm pretty sure there was a budget just recently in which they're paying for it's pre-screening, then screening. Um, okay, yeah, we don't want to share that budget with the world. <laughs> it's yeah, just right. the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I could be mistaken. That's why I wanted to pull it up. But um, So with pre-screening, oftentimes uh, you might have like a facility consent potentially, um, but oftentimes there is no consent signed for the pre-screening visit. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a matter of going over the study, discussing it a little bit. You're not gathering any data or information really from the subject in terms of study. There's mm -hmm. no procedures or anything of that nature. It's just a matter of kind of getting a rough estimate on whether or not they qualify. Right. And I, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing you mentioned this because I think most sites need to do pre-screening visits. And like you said, some studies, there's actually an official pre-screening visit. Right. Um, but even if there's not, it's not a bad idea for sites to do a pre-screening visit. Why? So you don't waste your time and resources on an actual screening visit if you can, you know, somehow exclude them over the phone. If they are excluded, you, you can discover that they are, uh, maybe that they don't meet an inclusion-exclusion criteria or something. And mm -hmm. pre-screenings is something that, uh, you know, really like entry-level people can do in research. I mean, if you give somebody a list of like basic questions to ask uh, during a pre-screening visit, which, by the way, now that gets into well, does the pre-screen does the pre-screening questionnaire need to be IRB approved? The textbook answer is yes. Uh, the practical answer is it depends on what you ask. So, mm -hmm. do you want to get into that because that could be a topic on its own? No, that's a, you're right. That could be a different. Uh... Whole could different. Be an entire another section. Maybe we'll yeah. do that next. Yeah. Okay. Well, so either way, it's a good entry level position to do pre screening. You can actually. Uh, I just did a video on this yesterday for people trying to break in, and I'm Chris. I don't even think you know. I'm going to do a video called "Comprehensive Guide to Breaking into the Industry." It's going to uh -huh. be like kind of like our site owner. Uh, you know, the two hour. Uh, prezies we did. I'm gonna do a prezi. It's only gonna be like half an hour though. I'll I'll probably do it today or tomorrow, maybe next week. I'm very nice. Sometime. So, but but one of the things is pre-screening, like become a patient recruiter, and essentially you're gonna be somewhat pre-screening, maybe not as thorough as the study coordinator, but you are gonna be doing some level of pre-screening. So it's good to mention pre-screening visits as well. Mm -hmm. So thank you for bringing that up, Chris. I also was thinking of that as I saw this slide. So, but Carlos did a great job once again. Uh, uh, always. Always. I don't even need to see. 
Yeah, I just know he did a good job. So screening visits. Each study has different uh, varying study requirements for screening visits. One thing that remains constant is the informed consent form, which must be signed prior to screening. So this is correct. The first thing at any screening visit should be the informed consent. Okay, the PI should also review the inclusion-exclusion criteria, medical history, and vitals in order to determine if the patient is a good fit for the study. Also, the study coordinator needs to be doing this as well to double-check everything the PI is doing or to let the PI know that this is what they need to do. Uh, this, this is what a study coordinator's job is, not necessarily to do the inclusion-exclusion criteria, but to double-check it and or to remind the PI to do it or the sub-I to do it or whomever is delegated to do the inclusion-exclusion criteria. Very important. Uh, then the screening visits can be split up into different days. So we go to the next slide. Moving right along here. So, oh, Carlos did put pre-screening visits, okay? Visits related to screening uh, visit is the aforementioned pre-screening visit. So prior to the actual screening visit, uh, these are also common. General patient information can be collected uh, to identify potential patients. Then you have a run-in period, which is after the screening visit. Not always, but some studies have a run-in period, uh, which allows patients to either wash off of a medication or to titrate on a medication or to be put on a medication gradually. It all depends on the study drug and the study design. But mm -hmm. just know that there could be a run-in period. Um, not always, but often. Often. Uh, and this data can be used to determine patient eligibility at a later visit. So um, you have pre-screening, then you have screening, then you might have a run-in period or a washout period, uh, and then a randomization. So we go to the next slide, which is baseline and randomization which are synonymous, okay? They're used interchangeably for visits in which patients are assigned to a treatment arm. Um, so what's the reason for the different uh, terminology here for baseline and randomization? People might be asking, Chris. Well, I have a few uh, thoughts. So randomization would be when you are randomized to whatever study arm, right? Baseline, I guess, could be where you start your comparison of data. So it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense in my mind to have it different from randomization, but I guess it could be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, randomization, I think, has to do with always with double blinded and uh when 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 ip is randomly assigned uh, so different treatment arms and baseline could be an open label study right it's just the first visit where you're actually starting to measure um yeah. after after screening starting to measure some data right so yeah. that's that's why i think the different terminologies but they both are used interchangeably all the time right and so no wonder people get confused in this industry, but we're here to clear that up for you. Okay. Mm, as best we can. 
Yeah, we try. PI must make a determination about patient eligibility during this visit based on protocol criteria. It's essentially, in most studies, just like the screening visit, um, except you are seeing if they're actually going to be eligible uh, once again. And if they are, you will possibly assign study drug um, using an IWRS system, most likely. So an interactive web response system, which will randomly place patients into their treatment arm. Okay, this is where this is how randomization happens is through this IWRS, which is completely automated. Uh, the coordinator or the PI simply logs in, lo uh, clicks on the subject that is there for the baseline visit or randomization visit, however you want to call it. And the system asks if they're eligible to continue. Should they be randomized? You click yes, and they will generate a number which corresponds to one of the IP bottles or blister packs or vials or whatever the IP is in the locked study drug room. And then the coordinator will go get that, will go match that number to the actual bottle, blister pack, etc., and bring it out to the patient. Right? Am I missing yep. anything? Nope. Uh, so that's randomization made really easy and condensed into one slide. Uh, it's always nice to keep things simple. Uh, regular study visits. Okay, so after screening, after pre-screening, then screening, then washout or run-in, and then baseline slash randomization, you've got the regular study visits. All right, so well, what do you have to say about these ones, Chris? Yeah, it's... Uh where you're gathering the data for comparison, again, to baseline. Uh, baseline being prior to initiation of IP, and then regular study visits are, are the ongoing, uh, well, I don't want to use the word, but experimentation of the IP, right? We're seeing how it affects, and mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be drug. It could be a device. It could be, any, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're seeing how it affects the individual gathering that data. And that goes on for as long as the study design is. I mean, it, some studies it's uh, fairly short, and others it's fairly long. Um, I've seen studies where it's ten years. I'm sure there's even longer. Right. So, oh yeah, there's work. some studies that go on until the patient dies. I mean, yep, could yep. be decades uh, before the their regular study visits are over. However, patient can withdraw from a study at any time. Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So it's up to the patient how long they want to go. It's also could be up to the PI and the sponsor. If they want to terminate the patient early, they will. Uh, for whatever reasons, we're going to get into some of those visits later. Uh, but yeah, regular study visits, I mean, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, also, very much dependent on the protocol and study design. Uh, patients will be seen throughout the study. Like Chris mentioned, these visits allow the PI to monitor the patient's response to the study drug, efficacy, and safety. Uh, the data from regular study visits can be used by sponsors to make decisions regarding study drugs' effectiveness and safety. There might be serious adverse events or regular adverse events reported during these visits. Um, during specific visits and crossover studies, 
some patients may be placed on a different treatment arm. So that's where it gets a little bit complicated in these crossover studies. Um, and it, they'll be blinded. So if a study is designed to where patient, once they randomize, they get assigned to either the experimental drug or the um, standard of treatment, uh, at a certain point in the study, based on the design, the treatments will switch. And But remember, everyone's usually blinded, so nobody knows uh, which one they're getting because nobody knows which, which medication or which treatment arm the patients are currently in. But they do cross over, and sometimes they'll cross over back again. Um, if you see crossover in a study, that's what that means. If you see parallel, it means that there is no crossover. It's just either the experimental drug or the comparator drug. If you see crossover, just know every patient, if they make it to the crossover point, will be switched to the other treatment arm. That's an easy way to remember that one. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting the way they design these things. And, um, you know, Chris, I actually, I'm teaching for a group, uh, a, a pharmaceutical group in Korea, and I'm the CRA instructor. But they actually have people who design protocols, teaching classes too. So mm -hmm. I think I'm going to attend those classes just to learn a little bit more about study design and uh, particularly how to do it. Will those classes be in Korean? No, they're in English. They're in English. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. The, the instructors are English and the, most of the students are from our drug companies from Korea, uh, but they all speak English, fluent English. Oh, okay. But, but they're starting to get more U.S. people in their classes, too. Anyone interested, message me about that. So, non-study visits. Well, take it away, Chris. This is your favorite. It is? You're making uh, awfully large assumptions there. I think if I remember correctly from our video, you um, had a lot to say here. I did? Uh, maybe I brought it up, I, if I recall correctly. We had skipped over unscheduled visits. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, non-study visits. So unscheduled visits are not part of the scheduled protocol of visits, but may occur for many reasons. Common reasons for these visits include labs are conclusive, SAE, AE monitoring, or PI request. So a good example, an often unscheduled visit would be something peculiar comes back with the patient's labs. Um, and they want to know right away if this is continuing before the patient's next scheduled visit, according to protocol. Mm -hmm. So you'll bring the patient back as soon as possible to uh, redo their labs. Um, that's, uh, in my experience, that's the most common reason for an unscheduled visit is to redo the labs. Um, but it could be for any number of reasons, um, as it mentions right. here. And could then, be for uh, anything, right? It could even be like patient. It, it could even be like patient was in the area and wasn't feeling well and stopped by, you know, sure. and then stopped by the clinic. So technically, it's an unscheduled visit. Yep, absolutely. And then uh, lost to follow up. Not a true visit, but must also be can be documented. So not a true visit, but must also be documented. Any patient that is unresponsive or can't be found is considered lost to follow up. And when you have a lost follow up patient, usually you also want to see if you can find them at their last known address. So either mail or go over there personally. Um, I think we often send a certified letter to show yeah. that 
that we try to get to them. And I think that's certified kind of re- letter certified letter to try to get the drug back. Because remember for everyone listening and watching, um, if somebody, if a patient just doesn't show up anymore, they most likely have been assigned drug that they have. And so the certified letter is not only to get all of them to come in to request a safety follow-up visit um, or an early termination visit, which you'll see soon, but also to, re- to retrieve the IP. It's very important. Mm-hmm. So especially if it's a controlled substance like the DEA, uh, you want to have documentation of a certified letter and three attempts that are documented uh, of like phone call or email or something to get a hold of the patient. It has to be all documented. It has to yep. be documented or it didn't happen. Now, why why does it say not a true visit? Because some people are going to be confused when it says lost the follow-up, not a true visit. Well, it's not a visit at all. So this is just a matter of this, the status of the patient within the study. Um, it's not a visit. It's, I, I don't know why I would say not a true visit. It's not a visit at all. It's just mm-hmm. the pace, the categorization of the patient. They've been lost to follow up. You, they cannot. They can no longer be found. Um, right. So it's not a visit. Yeah, I think in the in the source documents, it will have a separate tab called "lost to follow up," just like any regular visit. So maybe that's why. Um, you know, they're treating it like a visit, even though it's not really a visit. Sure. Because it's still documented. Like a visit would be documented. It's the same thing, but it's not actually, there's no patient visiting right. the site. It's all documentation on the site's part to try to get a hold of the patient. Fair enough. Very good. Very good. Very clear, Chris. And I believe this is the last slide, guys. So thank you for uh, staying with us. So other visits. I oh, know this is the slide in the video that you um, had a lot to say, but I mean, you can take it away if you want, or I can do it. Uh, there's a lot to say here about early termination, completion of visits, safety follow-up visits. I mean, where do you want to start here? Well, you've already started. <laughs> we already started on the previous slide. So basically, like I mentioned, a patient can withdraw from a study at any time. If they withdraw earlier than the study is designed for the patients to complete, it's called an early termination visit. Um, It's strictly for safety follow-up, and it's strictly to collect any unused investigational product back from the patient, as well as any uh, patient-reported outcomes like diaries, if they have an electronic diary or if they have a paper diary, uh, those things are to be returned. Also, if they have any other equipment that they need to return to the site, and just for a safety follow-up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it should be documented that the patient will be referred back to their primary care physician for further follow-up. Uh, if the PI is the primary care, I think they should still document it in their notes, both for the research and for the practice that the patient is now out of the study officially and back in the care of of traditional uh, medicine and not research, not experimental. Uh, so that's an early termination visit or a completion visit. It's the exact same thing, except it's when the study design calls for 
the visit to be the completion visit when the they end made it to the end. Visit. They made it to the end of the of the game. Okay. And the the final it's the these no matter which one it is, early term or completion visit or end of treatment visits, uh it's the final visit for the patients. Patients will typically discontinue study drugs at this point and be prescribed whatever their doctor or clinician thinks is appropriate. Um Safety follow-up visits occur after the patient's last visit and are important to see if patients have experienced any changes to their health after discontinuing the study drug. Most studies have a safety follow-up visit after the completion visit. It's usually just a a follow-up phone call um, asking the patient, hey, have you had any more AEs? Uh, I notice this a lot in oncology studies where they're trying to get endpoints, particularly progression of the disease or um, or even death maybe in some cases from the family. Uh, so you see this a lot in oncology, but just about in any study as well. Um, but in oncology, you see a lot. Is it progressive disease? Is it stable disease? Um, is it a partial response, complete response? These are important for follow-up visits. And sometimes they're more formal than just a phone call. They are like a tumor assessment. But since the patient's not in a study anymore, it's just standard of treatment, but you're just following up uh, like a, for, for basically for good clinical practice, which says to put the safety of the patient first. So it's a first priority. Not all studies have this, but a lot do, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's I think that's it. You would be correct, sir. So thank you guys for thank you guys for watching and listening. And we're gonna go back to the site owner academy. So hey everybody, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. Uh, and also go to the clinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, you can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to the clinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.